students were already primed to engage in protest and resistance and dissent. And so it was sort of a natural outcome for the Black Panthers to take this direction. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Black power surfaced as a regular news item in the spring of 1966, and soon after, the Black Panthers pioneered a sophisticated version of mass media activism that continues to power contemporary Black protest. In today's episode, we examine the book Framing the Black Panthers, The Spectacular Rise of a Black Power Icon. It's a study of the novel and provocative ways that a group of Black activists, motivated by frustration with mainstream Black politics and the glacial pace of societal change, forged a defiant and uncompromising brand of Black resistance and used media and culture to disseminate their message. Our guest today is author Jane Rhodes of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Jane, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about the Black Power Movement of the 1960s and 1970s today. But before we delve into this further, let's step back a little bit to add some historical context of the press and civil rights in the decades prior. The narrative is often that the mainstream press did this great service to civil rights in the 1950s and 60s, with its coverage of Rosa Parks, the Emmett Till murder, the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, the police dog attacks, etc. Yet you note that the image of the civil rights movement that was produced and the one sustained in popular memory was one-dimensional. So tell us more about this and what you mean. Well, thanks, Terry, uh, and I'm delighted to talk with you about that. Uh, there are a couple of ways to think about this. Um, certainly the mainstream press, uh, the major newspapers and television outlets in the 50s and 60s um, did an important job in covering the civil rights movement. But there are two things that are missing from that. One, that really the front lines for coverage of the civil rights movement, the struggles, the violence, the demonstrations, uh, was the black press. And almost no one ever talks about the role of local black reporters, um, local black newspapers across the South and the North as well. Um, they were really the first face of the reporting. Um, and then the mainstream press tended to pick up what the black press was covering. So I think that's a really important um, aspect to keep in mind. The other part of this is that, you know, the press swooped in to communities that they didn't really know. You know, reporters from the New York Times, for example, would show up in a small town in Mississippi or Alabama to cover an event. And they didn't have much understanding or context of what was going on, what the sort of racial and political dynamics of that era was. And so the, the coverage 
is quite superficial. It's focused on action. It's focused the events of of that day, of that time. Um, And it certainly unveiled to a national and global audience the crisis uh, in race relations across the U.S. But it didn't really tell much about the story of who the folks were who were living through this, who the organizers were, who the the groups were, um, what were all of the different uh, views and tactics. And there was great diversity among civil rights activists. There were many women who were rendered invisible but actually played a significant role. So I think we can give some credit to the mainstream press, but really we have to take a much broader perspective in how we think about uh, news coverage of that era. So moving into the mid-1960s, you see the development of the Black Panthers, which had formative ties to college campuses as well as urban communities. We have a lot of students who listen to the podcast, so provide the background of why this movement formed, what it was about, and the role of college students in it. Well, the Black Panthers were very much embedded in both the civil rights movement and the Black Power movements. And as you suggest, uh, it was very much a young people's movement. It was a student-centered movement. They really were influenced by sort of two threads. One was the Nation of Islam and their quest for Black autonomy and self-sufficiency and their uncompromising political um, and social stances. And a figure that many of you have heard of, Malcolm X, who was their sort of charismatic spokesperson in the early 1960s. So he was a powerful influence. Another powerful influence was what was happening on the ground in the Southern Civil Rights Movement, particularly the organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, And there were a number of young people um, who were working in that movement uh, to register Black people to vote, to empower empower Black people to change uh, the conditions of the South. But that was all happening in the South, and the Black Panthers were really a Northern phenomenon. Uh, The two founders of the group, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, were college students in Oakland, California. They were going to community college, Merritt College. Um, They met each other um, when they were both part of the Black student organization on campus. And they were profoundly influenced by everything that was going on around them. And they wanted to start a group that wasn't just going to sit on campus and debate the issues. They wanted a, a group that was going to go out into the streets, into the community, and take on some of the most challenging issues of the time. And so the founders were influenced very much by their experiences as students. Huey Newton was taking a number of law classes. And so he used that knowledge of the law in coming up with many of their um, their strategies and their a- activities. And they really sort of targeted young people, um, college students, also young people who were not in college, who were unemployed, young people who were coming back from the Vietnam War. It was very much an organization, one of the early founders of the Black Panthers was a high school student, a young woman, for example, who knew some of the Black Panthers in Oakland. 
So yes, so students were on the front lines. Students were already primed to engage in protest and resistance and dissent. And so it was sort of a natural outcome for the Black Panthers to take this direction. You note that early newspaper coverage of the Black Panthers framed them as hate-filled anti-white terrorists. Tell us more about some of this initial coverage. Well, you know, the mainstream news media uh, of this period uh, was very homogeneous. It was fairly elite. Um, Your average newspaper reporter for a major metropolitan daily newspaper or uh, television broadcast was white, was male, was young, was educated in a handful of schools. So there was a tremendous amount of homogeneity, but also sort of a lack of a broad understanding in the ways in which society worked and who was in American society. And so it's not surprising then that when a particularly militant uh, political group comes along, like the Black Panthers, that they're going to sort of register the kinds of anxieties of middle-class elite white America. Uh, White Americans were frightened by Black activists like Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael and the Panthers. They saw them as a threat to society, as a threat to the national order. And that really emerges in the news media coverage as well. The early reportage of the Panthers really sort of cast them as uncivilized and dangerous and um, outside of the norm of mainstream behavior. And so um, you really get this very alarmist kinds of coverage. After the Panthers staged one of their first protests, for example, there was an editorial in the New York Times. The editorial essentially uh, compared the Panthers and said they were just like white supremacists in the Ku Klux Klan, um, that they were you know, saber rattling and uh, threatening violence. And it it was just such an absurd um, argument to make because here was a group that was arguing against racial discrimination. But because they were Black, because they were angry, and because they didn't always use the sort of codes of behavior that mainstream America expected, they were often reported on by the media as a threat and as dangerous. You mentioned the Kerner Commission, which created a report in 1968 criticizing the news media's poor performance in attending to the needs of America, with the report noting the news media have failed to analyze and report adequately on racial problems in the United States and, as a related matter, to meet the Negroes' legitimate expectations in journalism. How did the media of the time attempt to address this criticism, or did they at all? Well, I think it's most significant that the Kerner Commission focused on the media. You know, there had been dozens of commissions throughout the 20th century that studied the race problem in America. This was one of the first times that the news media became a central focus. Um, And there was a lot of attention to the fact that the media often exacerbated rather than aided in the kinds of racial crises that were gripping America. So the Kerner Commission was, the the formal name of it was the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. And it was summoned by uh, President Lyndon Johnson 
because um, America was um, being taken over by what were called race riots of the time, what we might call uprisings today. But across the country, in large cities and in small, there were um, disturbances from uh, Los Angeles to Newark to New York City to Charlotte, North Carolina, anywhere. Um, There were these huge conflagrations. People's died, um, businesses and homes were burned down. And a lot of it was a reflection of profound anger and uh, frustration um, that had um, bubbled up in Black communities and spilled over. And so the Kerner Commission wanted to figure out why that was happening and uh, what role different segments of society played in this. And when they looked at the news media, they saw that uh, the media had actually done a lot to fan the flames of these crises. They, the press would talk about, you know, essentially uh, black criminals going in and burning down um, their communities. They talked about uh, sort of the threat to sort of average citizens. They used very sensationalist language. One of the things that the Kerner Commission found um, and, and criticized was the practice of only talking to official sources. So it wasn't uncommon for a newspaper reporter in any city or community, when an event like this happened, they would go to the police department, they would talk to the police chief or the public relations officer from the police, and they would basically write their story based on that. Uh, Maybe they would talk to the fire chief or they would talk to um, some other official on duty, but no one was talking to the actual people in these communities. No one was talking to the people who were um, uh, both victims of the violence, but actually, per, but perhaps were participants in the protests. Um, and so, uh, one of the things that the Kerner Commission found was that the news media um, discounted black communities, black community leaders, um, members of uh, residents of those communities, um, and um, instead just cast these as more evidence that people in the ghetto um, and and people of color uh, were sort of uncivilized and violent and threatening. So um, the fact that the Kerner Commission sort of documented this Um, and um, had uh, an important critique about the coverage, I think was really significant. Um, And what it did was to um, promote, um, to push news media organizations um, to engage in a certain amount of soul searching, to sort of talk about their practices, their reporting practices, the things that they had taken for granted, the things that they'd never thought about or cared about. It also um, helped to shape the curriculum of journalism schools. Um, So the um, journalism schools very slowly, very gradually began to sort of change uh, the way that they taught journalists, young journalists, um, how to report. Um, And probably the other thing that the Kerner Commission did, uh, well, the other thing that the Kerner Commission said was that part of the problem is that the news media was essentially lily white. Um, there was very little diversity in the news media um, and that that needed to change, that the media was not going to do a good job of covering communities if there weren't people from those communities actually as a part of 
uh, reporting. And so um, there were recommendations for um, diversifying the newsroom. Um, and um, there was a real push that news media organizations take this seriously. There was also a push for the creation of training programs through colleges and universities to uh, train more black and other minority journalists. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because we still think about the issue of diversity in the news media today, but the, the Kerner Commission launched an important salvo into this discussion uh, back in 1968. You also write about how the black press covered the Black Panthers. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I looked at uh, the reportage in, in California, the black newspapers primarily in the Bay Area and, and in Los Angeles. Um, and one of the things that was really clear was that the black press didn't always um, totally embrace the Black Panthers, but they provided a much more sort of nuanced um, and I would say understanding view of groups like the Black Panthers. Um, the, the Black Panthers came out of their communities. The, these Black newspapers might be the parents, the uncles, uh, the, the teachers of many of these young activists. And you know, one of the things that uh, the Black press really did was much more, I thought, a nuanced, thoughtful interrogation of why young people were angry, why pe young people were taking to the streets, what were the sort of broad societal and economic issues that were prompting this protest? And often the black newspapers might say, well, you know, we're not sure that we always endorse their tactics, but we're very much in solidarity with their cause. And so I think that was a, a, a really um, interesting and, and, and distinct uh, approach to reporting on them. Um, and it sort of demonstrated the the critique of the Kerner Commission. Um, the Kerner Commission said that part of the problem of race relations in America was that the news media had no understanding or context for what was going on in the communities that they were supposed to cover. And the Black press was representative, at least to some extent, of those communities. And you could see in their coverage much greater attention to many of the grievances that the Black Panthers raised. The Black Panthers were not only protesting, but they were raising issues about housing inequality and mass incarceration and hunger and problems in local schools. And so these were things that also the Black press took up um, to investigate and to address. So yeah, the Black press, I think, played, you know, a significantly different role um, in coverage of that period. I also want to talk about the strategic communication choices of the Panthers. Their look continues to be incorporated into pop culture today. They held almost daily press conferences. They had their own newspaper. You refer to them as a well-oiled publicity machine. So talk a little bit more about what their strategies were. Well, you know, I think the Panthers were incredibly media savvy from the day that they organized back in 1966. Um, they were very cognizant of the fact that they were going to get bad press coverage. They anticipated the kind of imagery that um, actually emerged in the press. And so 
I think two key uh, reasons for their um, sort of media strategies was one was outreach. In an age before social media, print media really became the sort of default. Um, and this was true not only for groups like the Black Panthers, but really most of the protest movements of the 1960s and 70s. You had a newspaper, you had a flyer, you had bulletins, you had posters, you used photography and art. Now, it was a very visual, very sort of tactile media landscape. And so, you know, the Panthers realized that if they were going to get people to come to their meetings and come to their demonstrations and support them, donate money uh, for their cause, they needed to be able to communicate with multiple publics. And so that was uh, a key strategy. So they produced the newspaper and they developed a national distribution. So it started in Oakland and within six months, they were distributing the paper, not only across the U.S., but internationally. And that played a powerful role in disseminating who the Panthers were, um, who, who the individuals were, what their program was, what their experiences were. But they also wanted to speak directly to the media. So they had regular press conferences. They would have rallies in which the sort of the centerpiece of the rally were speeches that would be covered by local media. And a lot of what the, the Panthers media strategy was, we know the mainstream media is going to distort who we are. They're going to distort our message, but we're still going to get out there. And, you know, you see this time in and time out. Now, when I looked at lots of the uh, footage of television coverage, for example, and there would be a speech by one of the Panthers, Bobby Seale or Eldridge Cleaver, or Huey Newton or Kathleen Cleaver or any number of other Panther leaders, they would often record uh, several minutes of a speech and broadcast it. And so one of the things they, the Panthers managed to get was uh, an audience, often a national, again, sometimes a global audience for their message, um, simply by creating a, a media event that the press would cover and they would record and disseminate. So they, they were very strategic in recognizing, well, we don't have a television station of our own. We don't have a radio station of our own, but we can still get our message out by sort of piggybacking on the fact that the media is going to cover us. Um, and so I think they were always, you know, very, very um, knowledgeable about the media. Uh, one of the, the key figures in the Black Panthers was the wife of Eldridge Cleaver, um, Kathleen Cleaver. And Kathleen had worked on public relations in the civil rights movement. She had worked for SNCC and other organizations in the South before um, moving North. There were a number of other uh, members of the Black Panthers. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver, her husband, had been a writer for Ramparts magazine. So these are not people who were sort of neophytes to uh, the business of uh, promotion and public communication. And uh, very often they were deliberately sort of provocative and incendiary. They would say things that you would never thought you would hear on the news, precisely because they knew that that would make it to the top of the news cycle. Right? You know, that they knew that uh, a provocative headline or uh, a provocative speech or tagline would get them more attention. And they believed that the more attention they got, 
for their um, platform and for their ideas, uh, the more people they would recruit to the organization and the more that they would ultimately be able to push for social change. And they were exactly right on that first point um, because the organization grew dramatically in its first year. It went from a handful of members in a couple of cities in California to thousands of members across the US. There were um, something like 40 chapters within a year. And that only could have happened with very rapid uh, communication. So they, they were incredibly uh, sophisticated in that. And I'll just add that they were quite different from many of the other sort of um, more radical black activist organizations of the time. Many groups, and this was true of the anti-war movement and other organizations, tended to stay under the radar. They didn't want to be covered. They wanted uh, actually to not get media attention um, so that they could engage in clandestine activity. So the Panthers were all also sort of taking a very, very different approach to this. The Black Panther Party officially ended in 1982, but you write that, like the Black Panthers, today's 20 and 30-something activists are motivated not by optimism, but by a grinding frustration as they witness worsening economic inequality and racial violence during their lifetime. Talk about other ways that you see the influence of the Black Panthers still alive today, both in media and broader culture. Well, all you have to do is think of the fact that we have a new Black Panther movie um, that's out and that's uh, sure to be a black uh, a blockbuster. It's no mistake that Ryan Coogler, uh, the director, chose Black Panther as um, a sort of a subject matter and an image um, precisely because of uh, the sort of lasting um, influence of the Black Panther Party on, on the national imagination, and particularly on Black people, on young Black people. Um, they're seen as heroic. They're seen as um, unflinching. They're seen as um, a group who um, didn't care about sort of respectability, that they were um, in your face. And that I think remains a very sort of tantalizing, um, uh, exciting prospect for young people who are frustrated with the status quo. And so, um, you know, we see it everywhere. Um, you know, the, the Black Panther movies are just the sort of most obvious feature. And that's based on a Marvel Comics character uh, that was first produced uh, not long after the Black Panther Party um, started. So there have long been uh, Black Panthers um, in comics. There have been Black Panther figures um, across lots of different films and television programs. It's quite hard actually to miss it. You know, one of the, the manifestations that I talk about in the new edition of my book is Beyonce, not only the uh, the famous uh, Super Bowl performance in which her group is singing f Formation um, and they are uh, sort of wearing Black Panther garb and marching to uh, the, the sort of style of the Black Panthers. But that continues. If you continue to, to watch Beyonce's films and videos, um, she persists in that imagery. And it's quite deliberate. She wants Black people to feel empowered. She wants them to see her as, as 
generating not just a popular message, but a kind of militant message. And so what better way is that than to sort of appropriate uh, some of the imagery of the Black Panther Party? Um, so, you know, I think the Black Panthers resonate in hip hop. They resonate in, in virtually every popular genre. And they also pop up in politics because if you want to denigrate someone as being too militant or too black, then, you know, brand them uh, a member of the Black Panthers or say that they're like the Black Panthers. So it becomes an epithet as well. So I think um, the Black Panthers' strategic uh, communication strategies um, have left a really indelible imprint on American culture. What would you say is the one major takeaway that you hope journalists and historians can learn from your book? Well, I think a, a key one is that the, the coverage of complex activist movements like the Black Panther Party uh, requires time, attention, sensitivity, and depth. That if you do a superficial, quick job um, and you know, dust your hands off and you're done, you're not going to get at the heart of the story. You're very likely going to just end up creating stereotypes and representations that are inaccurate and, and perhaps damaging. And you're never going to understand um, why a group like this exists, what their aims are, who they are, who they represent. So, you know, I think knowledge about Black communities, Black history, um, Black grievances are um, central to that. And that's why history is so important for all journalists to master. And then the final question that we ask all of our guests is, why does journalism history matter? Well, journalism history is, uh, I think, absolutely essential for understanding the world around us. You know, journalism history is not just about um, the nuts and bolts of reportage, although I think that's really important. But it's about the institutions that dominate our society. Um, it's about broadcasting. It's about today digital media. And we have to understand where that came from, how it developed, and how it shapes our society. Every aspect of the media has a profound impact on our political system, on our economics, on our health, you know, just take a look at the COVID crisis and, and you can tick off all of the reasons why media was central um, both to the crisis and to its transformation. So, you know, I think journalism history is, is history. It's global history. It's American history. It's Black history. It's all of the kinds of histories that are centrally important to our lives. All right. Well, your book was wonderful. I know that I learned so much from it. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Good luck.